Welcome to the Product Podcast by Product School. Here's a preview of today's talk. And so we kind of moved actually from explicit uh, preferences and, and explicit taste recommendations to more implicit uh, generated ones. So let me be more specific, right? We used to need to ask you, did you like this movie or this television show and by how much, right? In the modern world, we don't need to ask you if you liked Stranger Things if you watched an entire season in a couple of days, right? <laughs> so, which I did, except underneath like a blanket and yeah. So the so it's interesting. I think we're moving from from the present to the slight future to implicit input. Right? People and devices are monitoring our behavior and get implicitly if we're interested or not interested in something. Right? So part of the things that we started to implement at Netflix when I was there included right. Yeah, if you watch something for 15 minutes and then never came back. After a week or two weeks, that was a good signal that you were no longer interested. In this podcast, we teach our listeners valuable lessons about product management and transform them into thinking like a product manager. We teach product management, coding, data analytics, and blockchain in 14 campuses worldwide, including San Francisco, New York, and Seattle. You can find more information at productschool.com. Join our Slack community of 25,000 professionals to network and stay tuned for our upcoming events. Hey, everybody. It's a home stretch. Thank you for getting sugar and caffeination. It's everything I'd like to see. Um, that's me. This is what I'm talking about. And personalization, it's such an interesting topic, I think, for many of us. Um, raise your hand if personalization is or was or is meant to be on one of your roadmaps today, right? Now, for all the dozens of people that raise their hands, I bet there's a slightly different definition of what you think personalization is, what your manager thinks personalization is, what the business owner thinks personalization is, what the merchandising manager thinks personalization is. So today, I'm going to try to demystify a little bit of what personalization is by looking to the past of what personalization is and a little bit into the future of where I think it's going. But first... Visualize for me a little bit. We've all been here. You're taking a plane in the not-so-distant future to a business meeting in some town that you're less familiar with. Call it Chicago or Denver, or for me, it might be Baltimore. And you land in the city the day before your meetings, right? And all you want to do, you've been stressed out getting ready for these meetings, and you land, and all you really want to do is have a, have a relaxing evening. You're by yourself in this unknown city. So you find a bar, <laughs> right? And you walk into this bar, and all you want to do is be in a place that feels familiar, right, and be taken care of, right? Luckily, the bar knows who you are and where you're from and what you like, right? So immediately, your favorite song starts to play, right? So for me, that might be the new Janelle Monet album. It might be, for some of you, Justin Timberlake or Cardi B. But, um, but, the, but the bar knows who you are and, and knows what it wants to play, Right? And of course, the bartender also knows your taste in liquor, right? For me right now, it's all about gin and tonics, but for you, it might be Negronis or whatever it is that you like, right? And of course, since it knows who you are and it knows other people in the bar, right, 
the app, whatever the app is, your phone, your listening device, can recommend people in the bar who you might get to know and what those common things are and what you might talk about to make your evening a little bit more comfortable before jumping into a long set of meetings for the week. So this is one view of personalization, and actually it wasn't mine. It was this guy's view of personalization about six to eight years ago um, when I was at Facebook. And what's really interesting to me is if when I heard this when I was at Facebook six to eight years ago, it seemed actually a little bit sci-fi Black Mirror style. And although there's still elements of it that feel that way, I think what's interesting is I think we can all feel how parts of this this prophecy, is that too strong of a word, is starting to come true. Whether it's directly through Facebook or its integrations with Spotify and other things, the amount of input that companies have about us and what they're doing with that input um, through the various algorithms to deliver us uh, uh, experiences that anticipate our needs without asking for them, um, that's the scope of the work that I think um, is still yet to do. But, but you know, if I were to give this speech like Zuck did six to eight years ago, you might look at me like I were crazy. Maybe you still do, but this is a future that, that he imagined. Okay? Right? So if you think about personalization, I think some of the more general answers about the current state of personalization look a little bit like this, right? So I was at Netflix for a while, and so if, you, if you've seen things like British crime drama with a strong female lead and cringe, you can blame me um, because that was me, like 10 eight to ten years ago, right? Or, of course, you know, recommendations for books, right? I think when people think personalization in 2018, call it 2012 to 2018, this is what they think of, right? You think of product recommendations or content recommendations based on a set of inputs that feel like you and kind of help you navigate a large selection of things. Not incorrect. I think that's definitely a core of what personalization is, right? Some people are starting to believe personalization is a little bit different, right? So if, part, if, if you guys use Gmail, and I know a billion of you probably do, right, one of the things that they've started to do, and you've probably seen in your own interfaces for Inbox or for Gmail, are things called Smart Reply and Smart uh, Compose, where it knows who you are, it knows content that you, it predicts that you want to say. In this case, right, haven't seen you in a while, want to grab dinner, my app. And it assumes that what you mean is, here's my address, and it knows what your address is, right? So it's in anticipation of what it believes you want to say and has a storage of information of who you are and has, through machine learning processes, predicts that what you're trying to say is my address, right? So this is a glimpse into not, you know, this is the present, actually, right? But what's interesting about personalization and why I think I've been obsessed with it for most of my uh, career is because personalization actually started way before technology, right? When I had hair, (laughs) (laughs) I would go to a barber and the same barber every, you know, six weeks. And we didn't have to talk much. He knew what my style was. He asked if I wanted it slightly different for a summer cut, which I eternally have a summer, summer cut now. But he learned my preferences by having a conversation, having some feedback, and getting that feedback. And we didn't call it personalization. We called it a personal relationship. right? And I think it's what companies are really striving for with, with their customers or users to have something that felt more like this, right? without having to have a super explicit conversation necessarily. 
right? So that's what I'm going to try to talk to you about today, to prove to you that personalization goes way before, you know, learning about the Matrix on Amazon or learning about Stranger Things on Netflix. So I like both of those things, right? Okay, so... Uh, my key thesis here is that personalization really is rooted in that first part of the word, getting personal. And I think when personalization kind of gets away from that and forgets its roots in being a personal topic about people relating to people is when I think we might go astray. Uh, so I'm going to walk through what may be for some of you a new framework of components to think about personalization, referencing, referencing uh, examples from the past, present, and what I think is going to be the future. You got me? And the, so there are three, three takeaways. I want you to have a new framework of what personalization is and what it's not to kind of expand your mind and think about it a little bit differently. Have some key next steps if you're a company or you're currently thinking about a roadmap in personalization. And I don't know. Learn some stuff, because even if you're not building for personalization, we are all affected by personalization, and, and for good or not, we're, we're all victims of personalization in, in a way, too. Okay. But first, let me tell you about me. Very quickly, I was born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri, um, to Filipino immigrants uh, who came to the U.S. in the 1960s. I moved to the West Coast to attend Stanford University uh, to major in human-computer interaction. was there for many, many years, and now I live with the hipsters in Williamsburg um, <laughs> in Brooklyn. Um, I've had the opportunity to work at amazing companies, building amazing product experiences, many of them involved in personalization or other means of getting people to winnow down from a set of products or services or content down to a few. Um, in addition to this, um, I've been teaching at product school for a bit, as well as Cornell Tech, and I'm excited to be um, a board member for Out in Tech, which is a nonprofit really focused on helping um, LGBT folks who are in technology or aspiring tech leaders. So that's me. Sometimes people think that personalization has to start with these really long surveys, right? Like, answer these 15 questions and then I'll get to know you. And, and you will give me all of that information because I put a survey in front of you and you're going to check all these radio buttons. Incorrect, right? I think that ultimately a lot of what um, uh, a start of uh, personalization is really about making an introduction, Right, you probably said, hi, my name's this, I work here, I do this, and this is why I'm here, maybe, right, within those 15 seconds. You have to think about creating interfaces that actually are parallel to what human experiences are to get the right results or to get people to participate. Um, so just keep that moment in mind as we talk through these four different components of personalization. Okay? So we're going to start with input, animations. Input, right? So input, back in the day, when you would go to a general store, right, a, the, the curator of the general store wouldn't actually let you touch any products, right? Everything was back behind him or her, and you'd come in and you'd say, hi, shopkeeper, I've got a wagon, and it's broken. And they'd say, well, tell me what the problem is, I'll go back in the back, and I'll bring it forward, and then we can negotiate on a price, you know, you have no idea exactly what they have, but it's more of a neg negotiation and a curation, right? That was the input that you had. Um, but it was a conversation. It was a dialogue, right? When people think about input today, um, they think in some ways about explicit content. So I used to manage um, all of the stuff for, for Netflix in particular, the explicit part of the flow where you would give, taste rec you would give your taste preferences when you first sign up. You guys 
are on Netflix or have been on Netflix, right? Yeah. <laughs> Great. Right, and, and what was interesting about Netflix, um, especially at this time, this was 10 years ago, was when we were going through the shift between being a DVD selection company to being a streaming company. And so we kind of moved, actually, from explicit uh, preferences and, and explicit taste recommendations to more implicit-generated uh, ones. So let me be more specific. Right, We used to need to ask you, did you like this movie or this television show and by how much? Right, In the modern world, we don't need to ask you if you liked Stranger Things if you watched an entire season in a couple of days. Right? <laughs> so, which... I did, except underneath like a blanket and yeah. So the so it, it's interesting. I think we're moving from, from the present to the slight future to implicit input, right? People and devices are monitoring our behavior and get implicitly if we're interested or not interested in something, right? So part of the things that we started to implement at Netflix when I was there included, right, yeah, if you watch something for 15 minutes and then never came back after a week or two weeks, that was a good signal that you were no longer interested, right? If there's a certain category of content that was watched on a particular device or during a particular time of day, we made predictions that you might be in the kids' room, right? If people are watching it um, on a Wii, for example, or if there's certain types of content that's being watched on the phone, we might make inferences that that's an adult giving to their child the device to watch, you know, cartoons, right? And make recommendations based on those inferences on behavior that were not implicit, you know, that were implicitly gathered. Make sense, right? So the next generation, I think, of how, we're, uh, how companies are using data takes, the, takes this implicit uh, gathering to more of an extreme. Did anyone use Spotify running when it existed? I found out recently that it didn't, doesn't exist anymore. But the thing that was really interesting about Spotify running, it not only knows your music preferences, but it knows what your running pace is and songs that actually match that pace of your running to keep you on pace. Um, I'm unsure why they um, they don't take that uh, they they don't have that feature anymore. But I loved it when I used it, though I'm not that much of a runner anymore. Because I think it combined you know my explicit preferences in music that I listen to all the time with the sort of implicit knowledge of how fast I wanted to run and the pace I needed to go to 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 be at the tempo that I wanted to be. Right. Another more recent, I think I would put in the future category, is Google Now. And Google Now's ability to take all the information it knows about you and provide information to you without you asking for it. So if you're not familiar with Google Now, (laughs) Google knows everything about me. It reads my Gmail, so it knows when I've made travel reservations to to Barcelona. It it knows when I arrive in Barcelona and that I might want to know what the, uh, not just what the currency is, but how to say hello and thank you, right, when, when I get there. It also told me two days before what, weather I can expect for the five-day trip that I'm going to be there for, and it gives me suggested itineraries for types of activities that I might like, in particular art museums or other uh, culture-related activities. I hate it and I love it, (laughs) right? I hate that it feels so correct without me giving it more information. Um, I, 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 I 
I hate and I love that it knows me so well. And I think it's at the crux of where we are today with input, right? Obviously, over the past you know, 36 months or so, there's been lots of conversations about data, data privacy, giving people more control and understanding of what information they're giving uh, to companies implicitly, right? I think consumers need to, and you as consumers and as creators of personalized products, need to feel and be responsible for communicating to users what you're collecting and how you're going to use it and give them control of that, that input, right? Especially as a lot of that input becomes much more implicit, right? You might not know what Facebook is gathering about you. It, it's, a, it's a lot, it's a lot. It's a lot. And Google, too, and, and, and others. If you have enjoyed the episode so far, check out our upcoming live events at productschool.com slash events. Use the promo code PRODUCTPODCAST in all caps to get a free ticket to the next event in your city. Um, okay, so that's input. Let's move on to smarts. Right, smarts isn't just algorithms, but it's a it's a convenient way sometimes to think about smarts. Right, so back in the day, smarts looked like this: a woman, because this this is a story about the women's shoe department in Nordstrom, would come in and they would come in regularly, and the store clerk would recognize the person, and they'd go back to the card catalog. Um, it, it, do you guys know what these are? <laughs> Where they've kept the written history. Of, of the, of the customer, what they bought, their shoe size, um, and all of these things in the heel height and whatnot. And there were reams of the, these were card decks in the back. And so it would say, Mrs. Johnson, it's welcome, uh, welcome back. We've got a new pair of blue suede pumps, say, um, that, that you might like, um, you know, because I know you like this brand and these just came in, right? And if you can imagine those smarts, it was not an algorithm. It was just keeping records and keeping note-taking and building a relationship with a customer or a set of customers um, to help them feel like we, you were um, catering to them, right? That's sort of the, the history of, of, of algorithm matching or smarts. The present of algorithm work really came from uh, two different paths, um, Pandora and, and Netflix. Um, forgive me if, if some of you know this path, but, but, but they, were, they kind of emerge in two different ways. Pandora's um, music algorithm work centered al- around the music genome product, where there were musicologists or trained musicians and trained composers that dissected music artists and, and how music was composed to help come up with recommendations um, for consumers that looked kind of like this, right? We recommended this track to you because, right, it has heavy use of samples, East Coast rap roots, four-on-the-floor beats, R&B influences, and a natch, knack for catchy hooks. This is, this is like why I like Missy Elliott or something, right? <laughs> Netflix took a totally different approach in some ways. It was all about the numbers, Right? If you rated mis- if uh, user A rated miscongeniality a four, it might match through math to another Sandra Bullock film or another romantic comedy or a uh, woman protagonist type of film, for example. Right? And those were very different paths to start with. But interestingly, oops, excuse me, so Netflix right, would take ratings um, and particular numbers. This is a bit aged, but um, I watched all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> 
You, we'll move quickly. And then you would create a recommender system, which would have multiple algorithms where a, a, a recommender system conductor would actually, uh, it was sort of a meta-algorithm, would choose which algorithms applied uh, to a consumer. If you were a new consumer or if you have thousands of ratings, uh, we would figure out the right balance um, in order to, uh, to give you the right recommendations. Well, what happened, of course, is that both camps learned from the other, not just Pandora and Netflix, but those are the easiest comparisons, that there's value in, in doing both parts of the world, right? So now, both companies use a combination of heavy math machine learning um, algorithms as well as experts, right? Content experts. Um, Netflix has a squad of folks down in, in Los Angeles. A lot of them are actually uh, graduate-level film students um, or former um, uh, film producers who tag with hundreds of different tags to the content that you watch every day. Right? And, and we're not just talking about who the actors are in the major genre. You look at, is it an ensemble cast? Who are the protagonists? Where does a, is there, where is a cliffhanger happen? Right? Like, is it a happy ending? Like, what are all of these attributes of, of, of products, and how do those patterns emerge right, with the data to kind of give you the right recommendations? And Pandora transformed their world by doing a lot more um, data mining um, and, and sort of the more traditional algorithm work that, that Netflix helped pioneer with the help of thousands of others with a Netflix prize. Okay. Right. So, funnily enough, I think the future of recommendations takes a heavy dose and looking in the history of what personalization could be um, for, for smarts, it's personal recommendations, right? So, I, I'm seeing these types of recommendations more and more in my Facebook feed um, that it's, I, I need a chiropractor in Manhattan or I'm looking for, you know, uh, a massage therapist, etc. And the, it's interesting, right, because... With all the math and, and all the experts giving you recommendations, there's something very different about a friend of yours or a friend of a friend giving you a recommendation about a service or, or a product. So to me, I actually think that what we're moving towards is an era where there's a combination of experts, people you know, and algorithms, more traditional math um, math approaches to personalization. I think that's where we're, we're ultimately headed in, in thinking about the smarts that, that come up with personalization. Okay, going to move on to selection. Um, selection, this is a bunch of jam. Um, and if you've read The Paradox of Choice, you know that making a selection among a gazillion different flavors of jam is actually a really hard problem to solve, right? As a consumer, which jam should I buy? And, and as a store clerk, how many jams should you, um, how many choices of, of jam should you allow there to be? Um, and, and I think there's an interesting story to think about how, how selection has changed over the years, right? So if you wore glasses for as long as I did, back in the day, you would walk into an optometrist and they would only let you see the glasses that they thought were appropriate for you after you pointed into the glass case with a key. And they said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you can try these. Let me unlock this <laughs> and put it on your face and then we can see, right? And that was a very controlled way of, of showing you what selections were available and, and, and curated to what they believed was actually appropriate and, and useful for you, right? 
Warby Parker, of course, another place that, uh, that I had the opportunity to work, kind of flipped that selection process a little bit. And they said, you can touch anything you want. You can try as many glasses as you want, and you can decide for yourself if it works or doesn't work. And that really changed the model for this sector of retail, right? Like making that selection, um, making uh, your ability to touch uh, the merchandise and, and selection um, up to you, Right. Another way that I think selection has changed, right, back in the day, this monk cobbler, I think is what, who this is, would make shoes for you, right? He'd measure your feet, he'd know that you, you know, your right foot was slightly bigger than the left, and then you had flat feet, and whatever, right? Um, what looks, oh, and a tailor would do the same thing, right? But now, we're in this world where, where there are toasters, on Amazon that have Bluetooth. (laughs) Can you go to the next slide, please? (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so there are toasters on Amazon, right, that, that have Bluetooth enabled, so you can program it so that your English muffins are done when you're close to them? I'm not sure. I don't have a toaster. But it's interesting, right, where these products actually aren't made for you. There's just so many different products available that selection is more about finding and and winnowing down the choices to the ones that you actually want to have, right? So um, it's an interesting problem. And that's the present of where we are. But I think the future of where we're going, next slide, please, is actually back to this sort of tailored world beyond toasters (laughs) on the next slide. Please. (laughs) Toasters are a great instrument for not only (laughs) making toast, but you can actually cut... Oh, there we go. Sorry. Okay, so (laughs) Etsy, which I'm a big fan of, right, is about actually creating personalized objects or helping people connect not just with personalized objects, but with a maker or the artisan of a product, right? I think we're in an interesting place in the world where we're getting beyond right, um, a, a mass manufacturing and putting value again into how, how is the product made and who made the product, right? So people aren't just valuing the experience of having a toaster with Bluetooth, but they really want to know who made the thing, who's the artisan that made the product, and, and how could it be tailored to you more specifically. This is going to work. Next slide, please. Right. Uh, Another way that people are starting to care is not just about the product itself, but what are the ideals or values or missions of the company where it comes behind. This, of course, is Warby Parker's vision, right? Buy a pair, give a a pair. And this is not new news, right? Tom's Shoes and and many others do this. But consumers are are driven by this mission, by this value, that that's beyond the physical product and the price. It's meaningful for people, and more and more people are selecting the products that they want, not just based on that service or product alone, but what that owning that product or being a part of that brand stands for, right? Next slide, please. When you buy a pair, you get... You, <laughs> right. So <laughs> the other very fast-growing part of the market is the bespoke, tailored uh, clothing, right? Whether it's shoes or shirts or 
pants, right? Just the ability to further customize what you have. Um, we're, we're kind of going back to the cobbler days where an individual like me, who's not exactly a medium, because I'm a little bit shorter and, and wider than, than a normal, than a model medium, um, can find things that fit um, better when it's not so hot outside. Okay, so the last section that we're going to talk about is delivery. So it's interesting. I think when when e-com when I started in e-commerce, where we looked at success, we really said success and the KPIs that we looked at were really about conversion, right? Did you get someone to add it to the cart? And when they added to the cart, did they make the purchase? And did we maybe actually get it? get it to them. And that was where we kind of stopped and looked at the metrics, right? Maybe we added NPS or net promoter score later, but that was really all that we looked at. What I think, though, is that delivery and how delivery is a part of the personalized experience is actually going back to, um, to, uh, to the past, right? So back in the day, a milkman would come to your house once or twice a week, I hear, and deliver milk to you. <laughs> We're lactose intolerant, so I'm not sure. Um, so the and when they delivered milk to you, it was about a relationship, right? You you made or you had a relationship to uh, to the milkman. They would know how much milk you would probably need and on what basis and what kind of milk you liked. Um, I'm assuming they didn't have two percent oat milk then, but maybe. Um, but it was about de- building a relationship and right, making sure that you were getting what you what you wanted, right? Now, what delivery looks like is like this, at least in my apartment, where it's kind of an impersonal experience where sometimes you're surprised that you got a box because you don't even remember what you ordered and when and what is it. Like, and if the box is like eight times bigger than what you thought you might have ordered, you really don't know what it is, right? So I think that's where we are today. Um, I think the future, though, and I guess the now, but the, the, uh, the ongoing future is really making sure that customers are successful with the products that they've purchased. So Enjoy is this really interesting company. They don't have products of their own, but what they really do is personalize the delivery portion of the experience so that you are successful with the product, right? So let's say that you buy a drone from Enjoy. They do a couple of things that are so perfect, especially because all these steps are really annoying. They open the box, they update all of the hardware and the firmware, they charge the batteries, then they bring it to your apartment and make sure that you have a successful flight, right? And that's actually what success is. Success isn't, did you complete the cart, right? And did you get it delivered within the amount of time, right? And was the NPS score high enough? It was really, was a customer successful with the product, right? What was the problem that the customer was trying to solve? And did you actually help them solve that problem, right? A little bit different from the guy delivering milk, but I think it's that same personal touch that perhaps e-commerce is not delivered on fully. And so I think companies like Enjoy, who are really thinking about that whole flow, um, have the right idea. Make sense? Cool. I told you how it works already. Okay, so there are four components that I would argue are for the modern and postmodern um, view of personalization, right? There's input, right? What are the things that you're tracking, both implicitly and explicitly from customers? And how are you, um, and at, how are you notifying them what you're collecting um, and what moments of those things are important to collect? What are the smarts? Whether it's a recommendation engine or a person um, developing a relationship with a consumer, what are the ways that um, you're using uh, smarts to transform that input into recommendations? 
The third is selection. How are you taking uh, what is important to the consumer and putting it in front of them? How are you enabling the choice that they have and the method in which they make choices? And the last is delivery. Right After they've made their choice, are you sure that they're successful with the choices that they've made and how you personalize the experience in order to make sure that they're successful? Those are the four things in the framework. Some key takeaways, just like we did in the beginning, don't forget to start with an introduction. Make sure that you're giving um, consumers a reasonable experience and that you're not asking for a million things um, in your first survey or your first introduction because it feels really awkward when it doesn't feel human or if it doesn't feel like a natural introduction. Make it a collaborative dialogue. Make sure that they know that when you're talking to them and, you're give, and they're giving you information that you're actually giving them value back and that there's value exchange in both directions. That's super important. How and what you present matters, and making sure you follow through, through the delivery process, through them being successful, is ultimately, I think, the most important part in, in keeping feedback in that process. So that's it for me. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to find me um, afterwards or connect with me on all the, all the things. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the product podcast. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. If you want to know more about our courses and next courts, visit productschool.com. Stay tuned for the next episode to learn more about the secrets in product management.